We are in our year-long overview, in a sense, survey, in a sense, of what we're calling God's drama of, redemptive, of redemption, uh, the redemptive story of the Bible as we've been looking at it from Genesis through Revelation, just kind of tracing our hands over the contours and curves of God's story, seeing how all of the Bible works together to tell this one great story of, of redemption, this one great story of God's grace and salvation. And we find ourselves now uh, in the point, or really, in, in, as far as the story goes, in the climax of the story. As the tension has been growing, and we've seen it grow throughout what the Bible calls the Old Testament, and the sinfulness of man and the, and the justice and the holiness and the glory of God have been rising to a crescendo, we see how God solves what we've talked about being the greatest dilemma in all of redemptive history. How does a holy and righteous, just God forgive, restore, redeem sinful men and women like you and I? And we find that solution here where we are now in the person and work of his son, Jesus. And we're taking our time now, slowing down just a little bit, not slow enough for a lot of us, but slowing down just a little bit to look at the New Testament record of the life and ministry of Jesus, to look at the impact of Jesus as it's recorded in what are called the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've been taking our way through the first part of the Gospel according to Mark, and that's where we'll be this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to jump up. There should be some Bibles, I think, on tray tables in front of the sections of chairs back here or behind the last one. You can jump up, grab one. Please feel free to use it this morning. Uh, if you don't actually have a Bible, please keep that. Let it be our gift to you this morning. But we'll be in Mark chapter 4. And, and before we jump into that to see what it tells us this morning uh, of this man Jesus, let me do something a little less maybe righteous and tell you a little bit about my son Jude. Um, many of you may have met my son Jude. Uh, if you've met him, you probably would remember it. He's big, he's loud, um, he leaves quite an impression. Um, but if you've met him, you remember him. And if you were to spend any time with him and you were to ask him what he wanted to be when he grew up, uh, he would probably tell you right now, a professional soccer player. He wants to be a professional soccer player. If you'd asked him maybe a month ago, he would have told you a pastor. But that's, that's not high up on the list right now. Uh, soccer has eclipsed pastoral work but he, he used to want to be a pastor. Uh, but if you spend time with him and you really talk to him about what brings him joy, like well, what does he like to do? Uh, how does he like to be used? It, it, what, what, what is he like? Um, he would tell you if he really got to know you that what he really loves and what he really wants to do is he wants to be funny. That's what he wants. He wants to be funny. Uh, he likes to make people laugh. He loves to make people laugh. Um, but here's the tough part. He's really not that funny. Uh, <laughs> And I, I know, I know, you, I know you, you laugh at that when I say it, but really, he's not that funny. Um, and it's not for lack of effort. I mean, he tries really hard. He's always, and you should always just know if you ever meet him and you're wondering what he's doing, he's probably doing something to try to make you or someone else laugh, to make you or someone else smile. That's just what he wants to do. The problem is he, he's just not that great at it. Um, and so we've tried to help him. We've gone to the library uh, you know, guys like Jay Leno, I don't know if you think he's funny or not, I, I don't really have an opinion on that, but he's written books for kids on how to be funny, uh, on jokes for kids, and, and so we've gotten books for him, uh, we, we've tried to do what we can do to help him, but the problem is it, it's, it's just not helping that much. And, and here's what we've come to realize, uh, it's not his fault, it's not his fault that he's not really funny. Um, if you were here, you know, a few weeks ago, I told you that the last few months we have been going through some just absolute kind of upheaval in our world as we have learned some things. And one of the things that we've learned is that Jude doesn't really have uh, the capacity to pick up on what a lot of things that are going on around him that are really subtle. He, he, he's not wired to pick up on a lot of things that you and I just pick up on naturally. He doesn't pick up on social contexts. 
He doesn't pick up on social cues. Facial expression, sarcasm, they get lost on him. He doesn't understand that stuff, which is a really tough uphill climb for a wannabe comedian when he can't see the world around him and, and pick up on a lot of the nuances of the world around him. It makes making jokes and finding out what's funny really difficult. But here's the thing. What we've learned is we've been trying to, to understand how his mind is working and, and how all this fits together for him. What we've learned is that if you just take the joke and you break it down and you tell him why it's funny, he all of a sudden gets it. Like if you have to reveal the joke to him, he finally understands why it's funny. But the problem is if you have to reveal why a joke's funny, it kind of cuts the legs out from under the joke, doesn't it? And so he's got this interesting kind of uphill battle and this desire to be funny, to make people laugh, but he just doesn't naturally pick up on the things that are funny. He just doesn't naturally get it. To understand it, you actually have to reveal it to him. You have to explain it to him. And I say all that this morning because that, that new understanding for us and how this works for him has made me all the more sympathetic to what's going on in Mark chapter 4. I mean, prior to what we're going through with Jude, I think I always read Mark chapter 4 in the corollary sections of the Gospels, like in Matthew 13, with the eye that most teachers do. We tend to take our understanding, take our theology, take what we think we're going to say or what we've been taught and apply it on top of it, and we fail to get down to the reality and the, and the humanness, in a sense, of what's going on. But what we've been going through with Jude and this capacity to want to understand something but not be able to naturally get it and have to have it revealed and explained to you to get it has made me so much more sympathetic to what Jesus, in a sense, is dealing with here in Mark chapter 4. When Jesus is now teaching the crowds, his disciples and the people that are following him about the nature of the kingdom of God, but they're just not picking up on it. They're just not getting it. As he demonstrates the reality of, of his kingdom and of his kingship, and he teaches about it and demonstrates its power, they're just not picking up on it. What's supposed to be obvious isn't obvious. And Jesus is going to have to pull them back and explain to them what's going on. He's going to have to reveal it to them. So let's just catch up real quick in Mark chapter 4 of where we are and, and why he's doing this and how it, how it all fits into this story so that you can get it. Remember, Jesus has appeared on the scene now, and he's declared that the kingdom of God is at hand. The long-awaited promise of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because he's at hand. The kingdom of God was present because now the king was finally present. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, the signs of that reality were everywhere. John the Baptist, the promised messianic forerunner, had come and he had told the people and done his ministry to prepare the people for the presence of the king, for the coming of the kingdom of God. John, John had run his race well. He had done what he was prophesied and, and created to do. He had prepared the way for the coming king. And as he declared Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah, as it was demonstrated there in Jesus' baptism by the, the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved son, we saw Jesus go and immediately in the wilderness begin to defeat Satan and cast out demons upon command. We've seen Jesus heal all manners of, of sickness and disease, demonstrating amazing compassion amongst those who were suffering. But we saw probably the clearest sign that the kingdom of God was at hand in the fact that Jesus declared a particular man's sins forgiven. Remember the story? Friends lowered this paralyzed man down to the, into the house where Jesus was teaching. And before Jesus heals him, he declares that his sins were forgiven. I mean, who, who can forgive sins but God? The kingdom of God is at hand because the king was at hand. 
And even though Jesus has been preaching and he's been teaching the good news, or we talked about that word, the good news, or, or the gospel that was centered on the arrival of the king and the coming of the kingdom of God, even though we've seen him demonstrate it with many dramatic acts of, of power, Jesus has yet to really explain what the kingdom of God means. He's yet to really define it. And don't make the mistake as we go through this, don't, don't forget, everyone around him had an expectation already. Though Jesus hasn't defined it for them yet, they come with plenty of expectations about what this kingdom was going to be like and what the king of this kingdom was going to be like. But Jesus wasn't fitting their expectations. And the kingdom that he was speaking about, the kingdom that he was demonstrating, didn't look like the one that they were hoping for, didn't look like the one that they were anticipating. I was telling the first service this, and some of them smiled and admitted they needed as much sanctification as I did. But as I was reading this and, and thinking about this and preparing it for this, I couldn't shake that great man movie Roadhouse from my mind. I don't know how many of you have ever seen Roadhouse, but you, you won't admit it. You need as much sanctification as I do. But there's that great line that happens all the time throughout the movie Roadhouse when Patrick Swayze shows up to all these new places as a bouncer to clean the place up, and he goes and he does these things that nobody expected. They all look at him and say, I thought you were going to be bigger. I just, I've heard the stories, I've heard the rumors, I just thought you were going to be bigger, thought you were going to be different. This is what's happening with the people around Jesus. Make no mistake, they had plenty of expectations for the kingdom of God, plenty of expectations of what the king was going to be like and what the kingdom was going to look like when the king came. And people are just struggling to figure out who Jesus is and what his ministry means. Crowds will continue to press in on him, even as they are here in Mark 4. Pressing in on him to see him, to be touched by him, to hear him. But they're coming simply, as we've seen in the past, because they want a solution for their suffering. They want a solution from the situation that they're in. Life in a fallen world. They're wanting a solution. They're not pressing Jesus because he's the king. They're not seeing that Jesus came to deal with the root of the problem. They're looking for the solution on the surface. But this kingdom has come to deal with the root of the problem of the sinfulness of man. They don't see that they need forgiveness. They don't see they need redemption. They just want to be touched by Jesus for their circumstance to be changed. And we've seen the Pharisees and the Herodians, the, the rulers in Israel, completely reject Jesus' ministry, re reject his declaration, not just reject him, but think he's even demonic. His own family. His own family are missing what he's doing and who he is. And they said he was out of his mind. Now Jesus has slowly begun to reveal his true identity to his disciples his true identity to those who are coming with him and following behind him. But at this point, the only ones really certain as to who Jesus is and what the nature of his kingdom is like is who? The demons. Every time Jesus comes close, every time he comes near, the demons cry out, get away from us, son of God. They're really clear on who Jesus is. They have a perfect idea of what it means for the kingdom of God to be advancing. They know the implications of the declaration. They know the implications of the coming of the Son of God. They're the only ones that have seen to get it right. Mark is full of some of the best irony in all of the gospel records. But here in chapter 4, he's going to continue to teach his followers and to teach his disciples what the nature of the kingdom is really like. But they're not going to pick up on it at first. The obvious isn't going to be that obvious. And Jesus is going to have to reveal it to him. 
So if you've got it open, look down at Mark chapter 4. In this chapter, Mark narrates three parables that Jesus taught during this particular phase of his ministry. And this phase of his ministry is often called the Galilean ministry, but in the gospel according to Mark, it's going to take us a number of chapters. And throughout these chapters, Jesus is going to be teaching and demonstrating what the nature of the kingdom is really like, what the nature of him as king is really like, what, what it's really like to be a citizen of this kingdom. But we know from the other gospel accounts that he, did, he taught more than three parables. And Matthew's version of, of this time in Jesus' ministry actually records seven. But Mark pulls these three out because they say something in particular about the kingdom. Something particular about Jesus as king. Something particular and unexpected about what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom. And so this morning, we don't have a ton of time, so we're going to briefly look at two of them. Two of the more popular or well-known parables in this chapter. And we're going to look at at just what it says about the unexpected nature of the kingdom. Just what is it about the kingdom of God that the people aren't getting, that we often don't get? And, And what about him as king? And what about us as citizens of the kingdom? What is so unexpected? What's so missed? What is it that he's going to have to reveal to us? If you're going to start with it, let's start in verse 30. We won't start at the beginning. We'll start at the end because, again, my brain doesn't really work the way it's supposed to either. So we're going to start in in verse 30 with the parable of the mustard seed. Look at what Jesus said. Look at verse 30. Mark records this. And Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? And so he knows he needs to explain the nature of the kingdom. Don't miss this. He, he knows an explanation is needed because everybody around him is misunderstanding what it means for the kingdom of God to be at hand, what it means to be a member or a citizen or a follower of Christ. In their minds, let's just, let's just paint the picture. We have a little bit of time this morning. Let's just paint the picture. Remember, in their minds and in, in their expectation, what they were looking for was this coming to the kingdom of God that would be led by the king of God that was coming to redeem them from what they saw as their greatest need, oppression from Rome. At this time, they were under the, the, the Roman Empire, And so what they were wanting was this great Messiah, this great king that would come, that would gather God's people. When he came, all of God's people, all of Israel would see him, would love him, would trust him, would welcome him, would flock to him, and he would lead God's God's people out of the oppression of the Roman Empire and set up, finally, the people of God in Israel. This is what they were looking for. And Jesus is talking about the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand, that he is at hand, and they look around, and there's still Roman soldiers walking the streets. They still hear the clanging of the swords, Everywhere they look, there they are. I mean, the word said that when the Messiah come, Israel would flock to him, would welcome him. But those that were supposed to be leading God's people, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they said he was demonic. They rejected his ministry. They rejected his claim. His own family thought he was crazy. R.T. France wrote a great commentary on the gospel according to Mark. He said this. He said, here's what people miss and what Israel missed and what we miss. It's simply this, the nature of God's kingdom is so unexpected, so paradoxical, so opposed to human reason that it takes divine revelation for people to be able to grasp it. And this is what Jesus is doing for his disciples. And the first thing, the big thing we see in in this parable, in this story that he tells, is that the kingdom of God does not work according to your expectation. It doesn't come according to your expectation. It doesn't advance according to your expectation. Jesus said, what are we going to say about it? What can I say about it? And this is what he says. Look at verse 31. The kingdom of God is like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up, and it becomes much larger than all the garden plants, and it puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. 
Here's the thing about the parables. You've got to focus in on what the main issue of the parable is. You have to listen to it, in a sense, the way that they would have heard it, and then you've got to focus on what the main point of it is. Oftentimes, when we read parables and try to understand parables, we try to create our own interpretations of every single aspect of the parable, and we miss the main point. The main point, the, the, the emphasis in this one tiny story is on what happens to the seed. What happens to the seed? And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is like what happens to the mustard seed in this story. It appears insignificant. It's not insignificant. Oftentimes people teach us and go, the kingdom of God is small and insignificant, and then it grows and becomes influential. It's not. It's always significant. The point of the story is what happens. It appears to some as insignificant inconsequential, and nothing is going to effectively come from it. But what happens is it goes beyond all expectation. And given the size of the original seed, this particular story, this seed becomes so massive that it overshadows the rest of the plants in the garden and birds become, come into the garden to perch on it. The point of what Jesus is trying to say is, is simply this, the kingdom of God has arrived. And what to some seems so small and insignificant it, it arrived out in the, the backwater area of Capernaum when Jesus was doing his ministry there. It, it arrived for the pronouncement that this common man, this carpenter from Nazareth, was a long-awaited son of God. But the day will come when the kingdom of God and the glory of the kingdom of God will surpass that of every civilization and every empire that has ever existed on the earth. It, it doesn't come the way that you expect. What seems to you to be insignificant what seems to you to be inconsequential isn't at all. And the day will come when you'll see and the glory of the kingdom of God will surpass all that you've ever seen or ever imagined. It's not going to come the way that you think and the way that you expect. It's not going to come the way you've seen the Roman Empire advance. I mean, this is what you want, right? You want this king and you want this kingdom to advance the way that you've seen other empires advance. How does the Roman Empire advance? It advances by force. I mean, when you were living in a town that the Roman Empire was coming to, to conquer, how did you know whether or not you ended up in the empire or in the kingdom or whether or not you were outside of it? You understood because you were either dead or alive. When Rome came to take a town, when Rome conquered a village or conquered a city, those who were alive were now citizens of the Roman Empire. Those who were dead weren't. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is not like that. I know that's what you want. I know in a sense that's what you're expecting. It doesn't come like that. It doesn't work like that. The kingdom of God, it's like a seed. I'll try to give you another picture. It's like a seed, not a, not a big stone. You, know, you teach word pictures by giving more word pictures, right? That's why I don't write books. Uh, but let me give you another picture to try to help you see this. He's saying this kingdom isn't going to come and it's not going to work the way that you're expecting. It, it works like this seed that seems so inconsequential to you. It, it doesn't work like a big stone. In our, in our family, we, we love to garden. We have gardens in the back and we all kind of get into it and the kids get into it. And, and so we're familiar with seeds and I think a lot of you are probably familiar with seeds and, and how they work. Let me try to give you something else to kind of play off of this a little bit. One of the other things we do at our house that, that we talk about a lot um, is we try to encourage ourselves and our kids to do hard things. That's a saying you'll hear around our house a lot. Do hard things. And in particular, we, we kind of emphasize that at home on lifting a lot of heavy things. 
pulling a lot of heavy things, doing a lot of things that seem hard. And so if you've ever seen those guys lift those big giant stones on TV and carry them and try to put them down places, get that image in your mind. And the kingdom of God is not coming the way that you expect. It doesn't work the way you expect. It, it works in a sense the way the seed works, not the way this stone works. If, if we take this stone that we've got and we lift it up and, and we drop it down on the ground, what happens to the ground beneath it? The ground beneath it gets smashed. It just hits and smashes everything beneath it, but not, not the seed. Put the seed on the ground and the seed quietly and, and it gently gets into the ground. The stone, when you, when you drop it, when you lift that thing up and you, and you drop it down, it rearranges the ground and everything under it, but it does it by force, and it's not subtle. Nothing subtle about that big stone dropping down and hitting the ground. Nothing quiet and gentle about that, and it takes the force of that drop to just rearrange everything under it. The seed doesn't work that way. And the seed subtly and quietly gets into the ground, and as it gets into the ground, it begins to not break apart and revolutionize the ground by force, but it does it organically and gently. Processes begin to change. The stone doesn't change the ground. It just shuffles the deck a little bit. It just rearranges it on the outside. But the seed takes what's in the ground and reorients what's already there, all the nutrients, all the minerals, into a series of life-giving processes that begin to transform what was there into something completely different. Jesus is saying this kingdom of God, it's not what you expect. It's not going to come the way that you expect. It doesn't work the way that you expect. It, it works like this seed. It doesn't work like that stone. And the message is that the, the kingdom of God, it, it comes in such a, a different and unexpected and paradoxical way. You're looking for a kingdom that's like that stone that just shuffles the deck, that just crushes what's around it, rearranges all the situations, and sets you up in a completely new way. You're looking for this superficial transformation on the outside, but my kingdom doesn't operate that way. Human kingdoms can only transform the outside. They can only reshuffle the deck. Jesus said the kingdom of God comes not like that expectation. Not with the force of the big stone or the force and the power like the Roman Empire, but it comes subtly. It comes like the seed, and it does its work from within. And what might seem inconsequential, what might seem even insignificant to you, it doesn't break apart. But from the inside, it begins to do a work of transformation. It begins to do a work of revolution. The kingdom doesn't work according to your expectations or according even here to Israel's expectation. The message and the reality of the kingdom of God is that it simply gets into your heart. It doesn't break your heart apart by force. It doesn't break your heart by its sheer weight and its coercion. It transforms your heart by God's grace. The kingdom of God is not about superficial external change, not about shuffling the deck of the situations and circumstances. The kingdom of God conquers by changing hearts. This is the picture that he's giving. And I use that one specifically and started the end with that one specifically because it helps us make sense of how this first parable in Mark chapter 4 works itself out. And flip back to the beginning of Mark chapter 4. The kingdom of God, it, it, it doesn't break your heart apart by force. The kingdom of God is like the seed. It does its work from the inside out. It revolution, revolutionizes and transforms you by the grace of God. Now watch this in, in Mark chapter 4 in the very beginning. Look at the first parable that he gives. Your Bible probably calls this the parable of the sower, but who am I to argue with whoever put the headings in the Bible? But I actually think they should probably call it the parable of the soils. Because as we read this, you're going to see that the sower and the seed they remain the same in the entire story. 
You're going to see four different pictures in this parable, but the only things that change are the soil. The sower and the seed, they remain constant. The variable that changes is the ground. I think it should be called the parable of the soil, but who am I to argue with whoever put the headings in the Bible? But let's see how he starts. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, listen. Now, there's an exclamation point there. So get the emphasis. Listen. Behold. You need to pay attention. That's what he's saying. Everyone around him, pay attention. I'm about, I'm about to say something. The sower went out to sow. Now, listen, this must have been a shocker for people too. The kingdom of God. He's teaching about this kingdom of God and, and they're looking for this king and he's going to teach them what it's like. But what's the king like? A farmer? That's not the expectation in the picture I had in mind. I mean, that's just not even good contextualization for the most part because if we read the first two verses, you'd see that they're on the water and that Jesus is standing out in a boat. So if he's really going to make sense of his surroundings, he's going to teach about what the kingdom's like and what the king's like. A good fishing story would have been better. Might have been more appropriate for where he was. But he says, no. The kingdom of God is like this. And a farmer, a sower, went out to sow. And as unexpected as that picture is of what the king of God's kingdom looks like, what's even more unexpected is what follows. And what it, what it means to, to be a citizen in this kingdom and how one actually becomes a citizen of this kingdom. Let's listen to this, verse four. Jesus said, as the sower sowed seed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and it immediately sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched since it had no root, it withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 10, when he was alone, those around, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. Like, my boy, they, they need a little help. What's obvious isn't now so obvious. They need a little help, a little encouragement, a little explanation of what's actually being said here. In verse 13, so Jesus is going to explain it to him. I appreciate when Jesus explains his parables. It's very helpful. Keeps us from a lot of misguided stuff, all right? Jesus is going to explain this parable. It's not super complicated, but it can be super painful, all right? Jesus is going to explain this parable, and here's what he's going to say. He said to them, verse 13, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Now, again, I, I try to imagine what this was like, and I hope God shows us all these things in eternity. One day we can watch the Bible played out in its, in its real time. But I, I just imagine Jesus talking to him and kind of just, the sower sows the word. Who's the sower? They were probably as quiet as you are. Who's the sower? Boy, no confidence this morning. Jesus. What is the seed? The word. That's what it says. Always go with what's in red. All right? The word. 
And as we've seen over the past few weeks, looking at the gospel according to Mark, he has come preaching the word of God, in particular, the word about the kingdom of God, in particular, that gospel message, that word gospel, that good news, that the kingdom of God is at hand because he is at hand, that God is fulfilling his promise to work and to save and redeem sinners through the person and work of Jesus. He is going around teaching this word. Jesus is sowing this word, this good word, this gospel word of the kingdom of God. Those things happen in all the examples. The sower and the seed, they're the same in all those examples. The only thing that changes is the soil. That's it. What do you think the soil is? Matthew chapter 13 makes it really specific. Matthew's really clear on this. Mark doesn't let it be so clear. Matthew's really clear. He says that the soil, where this word lands, it's your heart. This is what changes. These are the elements that are changing in the story. Jesus is always sowing the word. The difference is the heart that it lands on. The difference is the soil that it lands on, right? Jesus is now describing four different pictures or soils, four different heart responses to the message of his kingdom, to the message of the grace of God. Four ways of either rejecting or receiving Jesus as king. Four ways of either rejecting or receiving Jesus as king. Let's just look at them real quick. And here's the thing. If you've ever ever gardened or done anything like that, you know that before you begin to do any real work in the garden, you've got to do a check on the ground. You've got to do a soil check, or else all of your work might just turn out to be futile because it's missing some important things. In a sense... That's, about, that's what's about to happen for you. I'm not going to say anything remarkable, but God's word is going to do a check on your heart. It is going to expose to you the state of your heart in relation to the good news of his kingdom. So get ready for that. That's the best I can say to you. Here it is. Jesus is going to give us four ways of either rejecting or responding to the message of the kingdom. The first, the first has to do with what we often call the hard heart. Look at verse 15. Since these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, and when they hear, Satan immediately comes and he takes away the word that's sown in them. So that goes back to that story that he was talking about where the, the seed was sown on the path and the birds came and devoured it. And the picture there is a farmer would walk along his, the area where he was growing things and he had a particular path that he traveled. He had a row that he would walk on as he would sow seed with his hands, casting out seed. The more he would walk up and down that row, the harder the ground would get the drier the ground would get, the more compacted the ground would get. If you've ever sown seed, you know you don't have the greatest control when you do that. As good as these guys were, they would sow seed, and they couldn't tell where everything was going. The reality of it is some of it would fall on that path, that hard path, that compacted path, that place that wasn't prepared for the seed to grow. And here's the thing. Seed, generally speaking, doesn't germinate until it gets under the ground. Some of you are smart in this stuff, and you can probably tell me a couple different seeds in the world that can germinate on top of the ground. But for the most part, seeds don't germinate until they get under the ground. The picture he's painting here and what he's trying to, be, he's trying to get across to his disciples as he's telling this story is that the same thing is true in relation to your heart and his word. You see, it's possible for you to come into contact with God's word, to come into contact with the message of the gospel over and over again. Come to places like this, 
hear things like this, read Christian books, but the reality of it is it never actually gets beneath the surface. You should drink water, not coffee. It never actually gets beneath the surface. It never actually breaks the ground. It never actually gets down to a place where it can even begin to take root. And every time Jesus is, is exposing these different soils, he's exposing something that could be true of your heart. And so the implication is you have to ask yourself, has the word of God, the message of God's grace, the gospel message taken root in your heart? Has it gotten beneath the surface? You see, here's the reality. The message of God's grace, the message of the kingdom is supposed to get down into your heart. And people who have experienced the, the power of God's grace, the power of, the, of this gospel message and, and this work in their lives are people who have moved from seeing Christianity as a theoretical idea, as a collection of, of important things, of, of a collection of, of one of many possibilities. As they've moved from it being theoretical and they've moved to the place where it has their name on it, so to speak. It ceased being one of many ideas. It's now become their own. Has the word of God gotten beneath the surface of your heart? Has it gotten into your heart? And that's one. Jesus gives another one. We often call this the shallow heart. It's in verses 16 and 17. Listen to this. This one, this one, this one freaked me out Monday through Wednesday. The third one freaked me out Thursday and Friday. So listen to this one. The shallow heart. Verse 16. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while. But then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So here's the thing. This second group of people, they receive the word differently than the first group of people, don't they? They receive it with joy. They quickly, they spring up, he says. This is why this scared me earlier on this week and then only got eclipsed by the next one. This is talking about people who can get really excited about Jesus. Can get really excited about Jesus. You've moved beyond the theoretical idea of one of many possibilities and you've begun to own it. You may even be able to walk around talking about God having changed your life through Christ. Maybe the gospel is, has changed you and you're excited about him. But here's the thing, you have to watch out. When difficulties and hardship, when the sun begins to, to rise and the heat gets hotter, what happens is that faith proves to be very circumstantial. Jesus connected this group of people. He likened these people to that shallow ground. There's not enough root that's gone down deep enough to sustain them when the heat gets too hot and they wither away. They can't take the heat when the trouble comes, when suffering comes and hardship comes, not just in general, but when difficulty and hardship come, because of the word, because of your identification with Christ. When, when hard times come, you can't take the heat. The things that are important to you have been lost or taken away because of the suffering. And now all of a sudden, what rattles around in the brain and the heart is, what difference does Jesus make now? It wasn't supposed to be this way. I was excited about him. One writer said this. He said that this group, they thought they were entering Christ's kingdom. But really what was happening was that they were trying to get Christ to enter their kingdom and they were trying to get Christ to fulfill their agenda. They wanted a blesser, not a savior. They wanted a sugar daddy, not a king. 
They wanted help and relief, but not salvation. They saw Jesus as a service provider. As long as they had services provided, they had joy. As soon as he was no longer helping them meet their goals, they've had it with him, which showed the things they really worshipped were the things they had lost in the midst of the heat. Another writer this week said, this group of people, they think to themselves that Jesus, Jesus is going to change me. But they thought their primary problem was that they were a sufferer in need of a solution, when actually their real problem is that they were sinners in need of a Savior. So in other words, they received the word of God with joy, but they weren't actually convicted of their sin and had no sense of their real need for it. Jesus said, best check your heart. Is it hard? Is it shallow? Then he gives a third one that scared me the last half of the week. We call this one the divided heart. Look at verse 18. Jesus said, others, they're the ones sown among the thorns. They're those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and they choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This became the scariest one to me towards the end of the week, and here's why. The first two, the hard heart and the shallow heart, in general, they're easier to see. I mean, the hard heart just simply just rejects it from the get-go. It's just one of many theories. It has no personal impact on me at all. In essence, I just reject that reality. The other one doesn't last too long. When things get hard, when things get difficult, and they will, I promise you. You see that it wasn't really there in the first place. The intentions were misguided. This third one, it's, it's a little bit different. Jesus says that these guys actually have roots. They're sown, and they actually have roots. But they're sown amongst the thorns. And that's making it hard now for the seed to bear fruit. So there was something that was already there. Something already had deeper roots Something was already living. Something was already existing. And in these hearts, the cares of the world have become too consuming. And I can take time to paint for you what the cares of the world might look like, but I probably, I mean, honestly, I think you could probably do a better picture of that to yourself. The cares of the world became too consuming. The enticement or the deceitfulness of riches was too alluring. Because of this, their spiritual life is choked. As he's telling this story, the questions that implicitly are beginning to pop up in the hearts of his disciples and the hearts of his hearers are are along these lines. Do I see change and fruitfulness in my life? There's root, but is there any real fruit? Do Do I see the grace of God clearly at work in me? Do I take any delight and joy in the evidences of God's grace at work in me or in the evidences of God's grace at work through me in the lives of others? Is there any real fruitfulness? Is there any real sense of assurance and confidence of whose you really are? See, here's what, what got me pastorally as I was thinking about this this week. That first group, they probably weren't all that miserable. They just said this whole message of the kingdom, this message of the good news, of the grace of God and person of Jesus, I don't need that. The second group, they received it with what? Joy. 
There was joy until things got tough and they just let it go. This third group, though, don't necessarily, at least not as he says, receive it with joy, but they've received it. There's roots. They're doing things, but they're not seeing any fruit. This is the miserable group. This is the group that's doing things, that's believing things, that's agreeing to things, that's not seeing things change and things happen. This is the group that scares me the most. The priorities of their heart are misaligned. And they're choking out the reality of the spiritual work of the kingdom of God in their heart. I can never explain this as well as Charles Spurgeon does. So I'm going to let Spurgeon explain this. He was talking about this particular section of Mark chapter 4. And he said, these who say that they are true followers of Christ, they need to know that they're on the boat of salvation on the way to heaven. I don't know Spurgeon. I can't say that. I can't pull that off. On the boat of salvation on the way to heaven. And you can't fall off the boat. But here's what he says about this group of people in Mark 4. He says, you can fall on the boat. You can break all of your bones. And you can spend the whole trip in the infirmary. And what's the diagnosis? You have a divided heart. And the only remedy is to cry out with the psalmist, O Lord my God, unite my heart to fear your name. Do you have a divided heart? And Jesus has a fourth picture here, the fruitful heart. This is in verse 20. Jesus said, there were those that were sown on the good soil. And these are the ones who hear the word and they accept it and they bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. You notice they hear the word? They hear it. They let the word of God, the word of the kingdom come in, go below the surface, take root, begin to transform from the inside the way that seed works, begin to transform them personally. And they don't just hear it, they accept it. They recognize that the word of this kingdom says that they're not simply a person in need of a solution for their external suffering. That's what the majority were coming to him for. They had heard the rumors of what he was capable of. They had heard the rumors of what he had done. Some had even seen the miracles he had performed and they wanted a fix. They wanted a solution for what they were going through. And Jesus says those who hear the word and accept the word of the kingdom realize that their greatest need is not a solution to their immediate suffering. They've realized that their greatest need is that they are a sinner. Their main problem is that they are in rebellion against God. That they, in essence, in their heart, want to live their heart apart from him. That they want to be king. They want to be the kings of their own heart and of their own life. And those who hear this word and accept this word realize that. And they realize that even if they've lived their life as a decent person, a good person, that they can't really find anyone around them that's better than them in whatever scale they measure themselves against, that even if they've realized that they've lived a life in a decent and a moral way, all of their best efforts are trying to keep God away. All of those good things are their efforts of trying to remain king of their own life and of their own heart. Those who hear this word and accept this word realize that what they really need is forgiveness. What they really need is this redemption. What they really need is the work of this grace of God and this kingdom of God to take root and spread out deep and lasting roots in their heart. And notice what he doesn't say. I, I, you know, this is another pastoral thing for me this week. Notice that with this last fruit, this last field, Jesus doesn't say that this heart lacks the thorns 
that this heart doesn't have the sticks, that this heart doesn't have the rocks in it. He just says that it heard the word and received it and that it bore fruit. See, not one of us, apart from Jesus, is sinlessly perfect in this life. But as we hear the word of God, as we accept the message of God's kingdom, it begins to take hold of us. And its roots begin to spread out deeper and deeper into our hearts. And God has promised, as that does, it will bear fruit. He also said that we're not compelled to have to keep up with anybody else's fruit bearing. I don't know if you caught that or not. He said some are going to bear 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Nowhere in here does he say it's your responsibility to keep up with the person bearing 100-fold. I love that. Because if you're hanging out with me on that 30-run ladder, you don't have to feel any pressure to chase after these that you look out and think are producing 60-fold or 100-fold fruit in their life. Because our responsibility is to make sure that our desires are in the right order. That we're hearing and receiving the word of God. That our priorities for God's glory are in line. He's the one that provides the fruitfulness. He's the one that actually determines how fruitful we are. Here's the thing. Let's try to land this plane for you. The majority of the people who hear the message of the kingdom who hear this word that Jesus is speaking, how do the majority of the people respond to it? Jesus says that ultimately they reject it. And the problem there isn't with the sower. The problem isn't Jesus. The problem isn't the seed. It's not bad seed. It's the gospel. What he's trying to emphasize in these parables is the problem is the soil. And the problem is our heart. And so it all just leads and begs the question, what kind of heart do you have? And this is what he's getting after. He's not just teaching stories. He's inspecting hearts. What kind of heart do you have? Is your heart hard? Are you rejecting the message of the kingdom? I mean, if so, I can only urge you by the grace of God to receive it. I can only even pray right now that the the mercy of God, he would soften your heart to hear his word and to accept his word and to receive his word, to turn towards him. Maybe your heart is shallow. Maybe this morning you hear this story and it's all crickets until we start talking about a shallow heart and a superficial heart. Maybe all of a sudden your ears perked up and you came alive. Maybe you remember a decision you made a number of years ago or a prayer you prayed a number of years ago that didn't have really any real meaning for you then and it doesn't really have any real meaning for you now. That you've done a lot of things but there's really no evidence of any real fruit being born in your life. Maybe they were just a series of religious experiences that you had. Or maybe you listened to this story and maybe you realize your heart's divided. But you've heard the message of the kingdom. You've heard the story of God's grace. You've received it and it's begun to take root, but there were things that were already there, things that had deeper roots. And maybe the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires of the world have choked out the fruit-bearing life of the gospel in your heart. Or maybe this morning, by God's grace, you're hearing his word and receiving it. That's what I pray. You're hearing his word. You're receiving it. You're accepting it. You're hearing your need for him to be king. For him to be king. 
And you're not just hearing, but you're sensing your need for his forgiveness. And you're trusting in his goodness and his grace to not only change you, but to lead you and to guide you. Has your heart been changed by the word of God's grace? Because here's the thing, when it gets in, when it gets below the surface, that's what it does. It simply changes you. That's its purpose. Has the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ gotten into your heart? Listen, I know there are rocks there. I know there are thorns there. I I know there are sticks. I know there's debris. I know my own heart. But remember this. Who's the gardener at work in the story? It's not you. It's Jesus. Your heart is the soil. Your heart is responsible to receive it. You know there's rocks and there's thorns. There's sticks in there. He's there. Ask him to pull them out. Ask him to pull them out. Tell him, I receive your word. I accept your word. I I want you to be king. I've got these things. Please take them out. I promise you, this is what you'll hear. That's what I came to do. Those thorns, I wore them around my head. Those rocks, they buried me behind one. This is what I came to do. This is what I pray, that you would receive the good news of God's kingdom like this today. And that the fruit of this message, the fruit of this kingdom, would begin to be evidenced in your life. This is what I hope and this is what I pray. Let's just, let me pray for us this morning. God, it takes your spirit with your word to do this in our hearts. There's nothing that I can say to make this happen in hearts this morning. If I could say it, someone else could undo it and change it. So I ask this morning that you do what only you can do. That you would cultivate hearts, that you would prepare soil, that you would help us to to see our real need, our real need for you, not for just solutions to what we're going through, as important as those are, but we would see our real need for you and the real reason why you came, the real nature of your kingdom, and the real place where your kingdom advances in our hearts and through our lives. We ask that you do this this morning for the sake of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.